So, I never got to finish the book of Nehemiah. Um, I had finished, got as far as Nehemiah chapter 9 before I went on leave, and then Brian very kindly stepped in for two weeks, um, and because he was also preaching through the book of Nehemiah, he picked up for us in chapter 11 and 12, um, and uh, we kind of missed chapter 10, but we'll get there in a moment, but I'm going to turn to Nehemiah chapter 13 this morning and finish it off. This should have been done last week, but of course we needed to say something about um, about the chaos of what had gone on last week. So this morning we're going to take a look at Nehemiah chapter 13 and just see how the story ends. But here's something interesting. I'm, I'm sure many of you know this, that the Bible is not arranged in chronological order. In fact, the Bible is ordered in um, or, or arranged around topics and themes. And so the first five books of the Bible are the, are the five books of the law. And yes, they are the first books that actually happen. So there is some chronolo- chronology there, I guess. Um, but then you in, get into the books of history. And again, there's a progression, a chronological progression in the history books. But you find that Kings and Chronicles repeat themselves. And then you get into the Psalms and the Proverbs, the, the, the poetry books. And you find that what happens in there is that there's a lot of those things that should actually, that, that were written much earlier. Um, so if we were to put the Bible in chronological order, we'd have to cut out some of the Psalms and put them in Deuteronomy because Moses wrote some of them. And we have to cut out a bunch more and put them uh, in, in somewhere in, in uh, First Samuel or Second Samuel because David wrote a bunch. And then you'd have to put a few in, in First Kings or Second Kings because Solomon wrote some. Um, and so suddenly you're starting to spread the, you know, the chronolo- chronology, you're spreading it around a little bit. And even when it comes to the prophets, um, the prophets are not necessarily ordered in a chronological order. They also appear all, all over the place in terms of where Kings and Chronicles, First uh, and Second Samuel. Um, and so you, you, you're kind of mixing and matching to get everything lined up chronologically correct and accurate. So what that means then is that although Malachi is the last book in the, the Old Testament, Malachi is the final prophet and he is the last word that we read before we get to the Gospel of Matthew, the reality is that Malachi is not chronologically the end. In fact, the chronological end of the Old Testament is Nehemiah. Malachi prophesied during the days of Ezra, uh, or early days of Nehemiah. So so we... Um, yeah, we're reading this book of Nehemiah and finding that we're reading the very last moments of the Old Testament. And in Nehemiah chapter 13, the final chapter of Nehemiah, therefore becomes the very last chapter of the Old Testament. Now, when you read a book and you get to the end, what are you hoping for in the end? Most of us are happy, hoping for a happy ending. We want to see the prince and the princess riding off into the sunset. Um, everyone's delighted, everyone's uh, rejoicing, it's a wonderful end, uh, happily ever after. That's what we want to see. Is that what happens in the Old Testament? Well, that's the hope, isn't it? But let me read this morning from Nehemiah chapter 13, and we'll see what kind of ending the Old Testament has. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into blessing. When the people heard this law, 
they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now before this, Elisha, the priest, had been had put in charge of the store, storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. And he had provided him with a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levite singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. While all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem, and here I learned about this evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the house of God. I was greatly displeased I, and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the room, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. And so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected like this? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought their tithes and of, of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to the brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw men in, Ju in Judah treading the wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all of this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on, on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing that you're doing, Des desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same things, so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be uh, brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why are you spending the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show me mercy according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of, Ash, of, of, Ash, of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. 
I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their, their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourself. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jediah, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat and the Horonite. I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priests and the Levites. And so I purified the priests and the Levites of every, everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O oh my God. I think you got the story right. Um, Nehemiah, having spent several years in the city of Jerusalem, making sure the wall gets rebuilt, packs his bags and goes back to Artaxerxes in, in uh, Syria. Um, I, I guess to report back and all that's been done and all that's happened to keep his promise to Artaxerxes because he'd said, I will come back. So he's gone back there and he spent a couple of years w back in, uh, in Assyria. And then he makes a return trip to Jerusalem. Perhaps he's heard of things that are going on there. Perhaps he just wants to follow up and see what's happening. Perhaps he's just come for a bit of a holiday. And when he arrives in Jerusalem, he finds things that haven't... They're not the same as what he left them with, let's say that. He arrives in Jerusalem to find that Tobiah, who has been the greatest enemy of the people of Israel throughout the book of, of, of Nehemiah, has made himself a, a little flat in the temple. The enemy of God's people has moved into the temple. He, Nehemiah is angry about that and obviously kicks him out and throws out all of his, his sofa and his, you know, like that, the blue leather sofa that we've seen on the social media, kicks that, tosses that out, sets it on fire um, and chases him away. He finds that the Levites are not being cared for. And because the people of Israel have not been um, bringing in their tithes and offerings, the, the Levites, the priests, have had to abandon their posts and go back to uh, go, go and work on the farms. Um, and then he finds that the people of Israel have married um, foreign women. They, they've intermarried with the, the Philistines and the Canaanites. Again, uh, this is not a racial thing. This is a religious thing. And it, it's so bad that the children are being raised and do not know how to speak the language of the kingdom of God. Nehemiah gets mad about that too. I love the bit where we, re we read that he pulls out the hair, pulls out their beard, beats them, kicks them out. And then we find at the end that even the son of the high priest, the high priest is the guy who let Tobiah move in, the son of the high priest married, is married to uh, a Canaanite as well. One of T Tobiah's buddies, um, Sanballat, um, is this guy's father-in-law. And so there's just a real mess, and Nehemiah chases him out as well. So with all that in mind, we've got to ask the question, does the book of Nehemiah end with success or failure? Is Nehemiah a hero who gets it all right? Or is it 
that he ends up in disappointment. Now, some people read the book of Nehemiah and say Nehemiah is absolutely a hero. After all, he gets to the end of the book and Nehemiah is the one who's clearing things out again. Nehemiah is the one who's chasing out the bad guys. Nehemiah is the one who's saying, oh, Lord, remember me with favor. Look at the things that I've done. And so there is a sense that, yeah, Nehemiah is a good guy. And if you read the book of Nehemiah with this idea in mind that we're going to read the book and learn from it uh, principles of project management, uh, how to build a wall, then you've got to say, yeah, Nehemiah did a good job. He arrived, he uh, gathered labor, he assessed the situation, and he got the wall up in record time. Um, and he established some uh, some. Uh, systems and principles that would allow the city of Jerusalem to run and function well. Um, and here at the end, again, here, we, here we've got Nehemiah stepping in and taking charge and cleaning up and fixing what's messed up. And you kind of look at that and go, yeah, okay, it looks like Nehemiah's done a good job. It looks like Nehemiah is a hero. And you know what? You should be like Nehemiah. That's often the message that we get. Try harder to be more like Nehemiah. But I don't know if that's the right reading. I think that this book ends in failure. Because, you see, Nehemiah didn't just arrive in Jerusalem to rebuild walls. Nehemiah arrived in Jerusalem to reestablish the kingdom of God. Nehemiah came to Jerusalem to gather the scattered people of God, those who had been exiled, to bring them into the city. And you remember right at the beginning we read that the city was empty. So Nehemiah's come and he's gathered the people of God and he's brought them into the city. And he's not just building walls. He's reestablishing the kingdom. It's about the kingdom. And the kingdom is always about God's people living in God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. And so Nehemiah has. He's gathered the people into God's place and he's laid out for them God's rules. Are they living by God's rules? Are they enjoying God's blessing? And you've got to say at the end of this book, no, they're not. They failed. In fact, what's even more disappointing is if you go back to Nehemiah chapter 10, the chapter that we skipped. Nehemiah chapter 9 is the last chapter that I preached on from Nehemiah, and it's a chapter of, of a prayer of confession and repentance. The people um, have recognized that they've done wrong. They've recognized that uh, they've been they violated the laws of God. Um, they've been convicted by the preaching of Ezra and by the prayer of Nehemiah. And so uh, chapter 10 comes along, and what happens is that the people make promises to God. The people make a new vow before God, and they say, God, we promise to be good. We promise to be better. We promise that from now on, you're going to find that we are the most law-abiding, most obedient people that you've ever had. You're going to find that we're changed. They've been so moved by the preaching and by the prayer there's been a, a pouring out of the Spirit that has resulted in this earnest and eager desire from their hearts to, to, to get it right this time. And it's almost like the doors have been shut and they're singing just as I am one more time. Um, and Nehemiah is calling people to, to come to the front and, and they're rushing to the front. They're raising their hands. Yes, I will. And they've got to the front and they're signing their commitment forms. I promise to be a good person. I promise to be nice. I promise to obey the law. I promise never to do bad things ever again. You know what's interesting? Chapter 10 sets out the promises and chapter 13 shows us 
exactly how they violated every single one of those promises they made. They promised, we will keep the Sabbath. Go and read chapter 10. You'll see it. It's very clear. We will keep the Sabbath. We won't do any work on the Sabbath. We'll obey the Sabbath. What happens chapter 13? They're working on the Sabbath. They violated the command, or not the command, the, the commitment that they made, the promise that they made. They're saying, you know, a couple of years gone by, they kind of forgot. Things have got, I don't know, we, we need to do stuff on the Sabbath. And so off they go. They're now working on the Sabbath. They promised, we will keep the, this is interesting, and they say, we will keep the storehouse full. Those are the words they use in chapter 10. We will bring in our first fruits and our tithes, we'll bring from the fields, we'll provide for all the Levites so that they've got food to eat, and we will keep the storehouse full. What do you find in chapter 13? The storehouse is empty. Why is it empty? Because the people haven't kept their commitment, haven't maintained their promise. And instead of the storehouse being full of goods in order to maintain the priesthood, we find that the storehouse has someone living in it, Tobiah, the enemy of God's people. In chapter 10, the people say, we promise we will not get married to Canaanites. We will not uh, hand out our daughters and our sons to the Canaanite people around us because we know that they worship idols and we do not want our grandkids to be raised to worship idols. We promise we won't do this. Chapter 13, they're marrying, they're intermarrying with the nations around them. Even the high priest has handed over his son to a foreign woman, to a Canaanite. And so what we're seeing in chapter 13 is not so much a story of Nehemiah fixing things and Nehemiah coming in and sweeping it all clean again. We're seeing in chapter 13 a complete reversal of chapter 10. Now, we could get moralistic with chapter 13, couldn't we? We could say, you know, you need to keep the Sabbath. You need to make sure you're not washing your cars on Sunday, because if you don't, I'm going to come and find you, and I'll beat you just like Nehemiah did. could do that, I guess. I think there is room to say, don't let the enemy move in. Um, just like they let T Tobiah move into the house of God. Don't let the enemy move into the temple of the Holy Spirit that is your soul. I don't think some of us have let the enemy move in, haven't we? We've let him in by opening another bottle of beer, another bottle of whiskey. We've let the enemy in by cracking the door and allowing bitterness to settle in. We've allowed the enemy in by opening the door and welcoming in jealousy and greed. And when we come into the lounge of our heart, we find there they are. Bitterness has taken up his place on the recliner and he's got the TV remote in his hand and he's just playing back all the old videos of all the terrible things that have been done to you and you just feel bitter more and more. Some of us have let the enemy in. Some of us have intermarried. Uh, don't look at your husband or your wife right now and ask by you, Einstein, that's not the point. No, no, some of us have given our souls to this world. Some of us have engaged with this world and have begun to worship what our world worships. And we not, might not have been married to the Ites, the Canaanites and the uh, Ammonites, but we've given ourselves to the isms, to materialism and selfishism. Is that even a word? But again, to talk about those sort of things just doesn't quite go far enough. 
See, the, the point to, to see here this morning is not to see that, you know, you mustn't get involved. Don't, don't let to buy in. I mean, the, we can draw an application from that. But I think there is a bigger issue at stake. And I think you understand it. Because I think some of you have been, have had a chapter 10 experience. Some of you have been at a church camp or a youth camp or a missions exposure or you've been to a, a church somewhere and been deeply impacted by the preaching or by the music or whatever it's been. And you've made vows and commitments to God. And you've stepped up just like these Israelites did and said, oh, Lord, we're going to be different. You're going to find that we're not going to let Tobiah in anymore. Oh, Lord, you're going to find that we're going to live in the Sabbath. We're going to enjoy your peace. I'm not talking about not washing cars, but enjoying the true peace and the true rest that God brings by not living by our own self-righteousness and works. But we're going to, we're going to engage with God in, in true rest. Oh, Lord, we're going to do these things. You're going to find that we are better. We are nicer. We are gooder. <laughs> you've had those moments, haven't you? You've, you've been to one of those church services and you've been inspired and you've been moved by the spirit and your emotion has been tweaked and your soul has been fed and and you've rushed to the front and you've signed forms and promised to give your life to missions forever and you're going to be a missionary in China or wherever it is that you're going to be and then what happens in a couple of years time and some of you are able to look back and go gee yeah I did make a commitment I haven't kept up to it at all why? You know, that's the story of the entire Old Testament. The story of Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13 in particular is the story of the entire Old Testament. Of God saying, here are my laws. Don't worship idols. Come and worship me. And the people of Israel say, sure, we'll do it. And what happens? You've got Adam and Eve. God saying, you're my people. You're here in my place. I'm your king, and I'm going to bless you. Everything's going to be wonderful. I just have one rule. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. God's barely turned his back, and they're making fruit smoothies. Moses tells the people, God has led you out of Egypt. You see what he did to the Egyptian army? You, you, you've seen the plagues. You've seen the pillar of, of fire and the pillar of cloud. You know that God has led you out, right? So worship him. Don't worship idols. I'm going up the mountain to sign the agreement with God. What do the people do while Moses is busy signing the agreement? Oh, they make a golden calf and they worship that. This is the God that led you out of Egypt, they say. The story of the prophets again and again and again is the same story. Obey the word of God, keep his laws, or suffer the curse. And Nehemiah has been able to say, look around at the ruined city. Can you see the neighborhoods that are still empty? You can still see burnt uh, patches. You can still see the ruins. You can still see that the temple is not what it was. You can see the effects of the sinfulness of the nation. Even though we're rebuilding the kingdom, uh, the, the, the history is there to see. And yet what do the people do? They do what they always do. They violate the law of God. They turn their back on him. And they worship idols. Because the point of the Old Testament is this. You cannot save yourself. Let me use different words. You cannot gain entrance into the kingdom of God by being good. You cannot gain entrance into the kingdom of God by making a couple of commitments and promising that you're going to be a good person and that you're going to earn it, that you're going to deserve it. The Old Testament ends in disappointment. The Old Testament ends with the people of God 
in the place of God, but not enjoying his blessing. Instead, we find that the people of God have not learned their lesson. That the people of God have, for 5,000 years or 6,000 years, or however long the history of the Old Testament might be, for however long that's been, the people of God have not learned and not come to understand that in order to enter the kingdom and in order to enjoy God's blessing, that they need to obey God's laws. They failed. If If the Old Testament ends there, it's a depressing story. And I feel sorry for Jewish people who would end this, the Old Testament then go, we failed. And of course my, my Jewish friends would say, oh no, but, but you know what, Chris, there is hope, there is hope. God promises something better. And yes, he does. And thank goodness the Bible doesn't end with Nehemiah. And the Gospel of Matthew opens with Jesus coming and announcing the good news of the kingdom. That the king is here. And what we find in the New Testament is that entrance into the kingdom of God is not dependent on how good or how bad you are. An entrance into the kingdom is not based on whether or not you can keep your commitments and whether or not you can get rid of Tobiah and whether or not you can obey the Sabbath and whether or not you can keep away from all the isms. But entrance into the kingdom of God is based on faith in Jesus. And we find that the point then of the book of Nehemiah is not that you need to try and be more like Nehemiah. We find that the point of the book of Nehemiah is we need a better Nehemiah. What we need is not a Nehemiah who's going to come and pull out our hair. Although you would guess that I've already encountered Nehemiah and gone through that. We don't need someone who's going to pull out our hair, pull out our beard and beat us up. We don't need another Nehemiah who's going to come along and kick us out for violating the laws. We need a better Nehemiah who can do a better job than Nehemiah in establishing the kingdom and welcoming you and I in. And so we find that Jesus comes. And his hair is pulled out. And his beard is pulled out. And he is beaten in our place even though he's innocent. And he's led out of the city. He's kicked out of the temple. He's dragged out uh, and, and treated as an enemy. He becomes an exile, taken outside the city walls, beyond the kingdom, as it were, led away like a common criminal. And there's this great reversal that takes place, isn't there? That we're the ones who should be beaten and have our beards pulled out. If you have a beard. But instead, we find that Jesus is the one who is beaten and dragged out. We're the ones who should be exiled from the kingdom. Because we're not Nehemiah. We're the people of Israel. We're not Nehemiah running around saying, oh, you need to fix it. We're the people of Israel. And I think you can see it in your own life if you look hard enough. You know that there are times that you're not enjoying God's rest. That instead you're working for righteousness sake and proving to God that you're good. You know that there are times when you've let Tobiah in. You know that there's times when you've given your heart and soul to the world around you. You're not Nehemiah. You need a better Nehemiah. And Jesus steps into that role. And Jesus becomes the better Nehemiah. Instead of Jesus dishing out the beatings, Jesus becomes beaten. He takes our place.
This is your story. This is my story. This is the gospel story. That we want to be part of the kingdom. We want to be brought in. We'll try our very best. But without Jesus, we have no hope. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him. Thankfully, the book of Nehemiah ends, the Old Testament ends, with this simple phrase, these simple words. Remember me with favor, O God. Favor, another word for favor, grace. Remember me with grace. And that's how Nehemiah ends. And there's a sense in that of pointing forward to the New Testament and to Jesus who would come. It's the words that should be on our lips. Remember us, O Lord, with grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we have to acknowledge this morning that we're no different from the Israelites. We invite to buy in. Instead of resting in the rest and peace that you bring, we work our tails off trying to show that we're worth it and that we deserve it. We give our heart and soul to the world around us. Instead of filling the storehouses of the temple, we empty it out. We send our gifts elsewhere. We're just like the Israelites. We cannot keep the commitments that we make. And Lord, we could end there this morning and recognize our failings and failures and leave disheartened. But instead we must see the grace, the grace of Jesus. We see in Jesus the better Nehemiah. Not the one who beats and pulls out hair, but the one who is beaten and whose hair is pulled out. Not the one who kicks people out the temple, but the one who is himself kicked out and exiled for us. And so Jesus, this morning we celebrate this simple fact. That you have brought us into your kingdom. That you have welcomed us in. And that we are welcomed in by grace, not by effort. And you pour out your abundant grace on us. And so, Lord, we rejoice in your goodness to us. Amen.